questions and answers. Christians argue that the miraculous life of Jesus sets him apart from all other religious leaders of the world. However, critics argue that other religious leaders have miracle accounts. Critics also question the accuracy of the New Testament accounts since they were written decades after the life of Christ. Is Jesus unique from all other religious leaders? What about the miracle accounts in the other religions? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucharan. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat and Dr. Gary Habermas examine these challenges and explain why Jesus is unique among all the religious leaders of the world. Four, only founder of a religion who performed miracles, and here's the key, perform miracles which are recorded within a generation. The only one who recorded who, who uh, has miracles recorded of him in a generation. Okay, five. He's the only one who said that his death was central for our salvation. He's the only one who said, said what you do with me determines where you spend eternity. So it's going to be a key there because if his death is if his death is the key, then you know, what you do with him is going to be where you spend eternity. So that puts those two together. Six, this one I acknowledge is a little more debatable. It's the only one that's really debatable a little bit. That is, uh, Jesus is the only founder who taught that pain and evil were both real and included at the very center of the gospel. In other words, Christianity doesn't dodge the existence of evil, doesn't call it illusion, doesn't say, you know, whatever. But not only does it, not only does Christianity say it's real, it's part of the gospel. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's the center of Christianity. Well, okay, but how do you mean that? Well, the gospel, if you let the New Testament define it, God said of the gospel, God's side, you know, the historical facts, are that Jesus claimed to be deity. We already mentioned that. He died on the cross. We already mentioned that. And he was raised from the dead. Well, if the gospel of Mark is true, and it's pretty well believed that Mark's right here, that Jesus really said this. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is evil. Crucifixion is evil. What happened in the garden, the uh, sweat drops of blood and so on, that's evil. But you can't divorce it from Christianity because it's the heart of the gospel. It's why Jesus died. So then the last two, seven and eight, Jesus is the only founder of a major religion who predicted his resurrection ahead of time. He didn't just rise from the dead. He told everybody he was going to. I mean, in Mark alone, he does it like five times. In the Gospel of Mark alone. And most, you say, well, that's just according to your Gospel again. Well, what if I gave you a list of agnostic and atheist and Jewish, non-Christian Jewish, New Testament scholars who believe Jesus predicted his resurrection? I can do that. I'll give you a list. And lastly, he's easily the only founder of a major world religion who is believed by his Orthodox followers to be raised from the dead, because that's not even taught of any other major founder. Uh, you know, there's no major religious group, say, you know, take anybody, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Moses, David. In fact, the New Testament makes a big deal of the fact that David didn't come back to life, but Jesus did. So the fact of the resurrection separates Christianity from all the other religions because it would argue, since dead men don't do anything, if Jesus rose from the dead, that means what Jesus said, that his father acted on him. For what reason? Because he's a heretic? Uh, hardly. Because what he taught was true. 
And if these eight things are true, you've got Christianity. This is the heart of Christianity. So there's eight areas where Jesus is unique as compared to any other founder. Yes, let's take a look at some of these. For example, Jesus taught his own deity. You know, well, you have skeptics there saying, well, there's no passage you can point into the Gospels where Jesus says, you know, I am God, where he clearly says that, hey, everybody, I am God. I am the creator of the universe. There's no verse like that. That's true. But that's not the only way you can say, I'm deity. Now, notice I'm using the word deity instead of saying, I'm God, because number one, he doesn't say, I'm God. And number two, I'm using deity because the New Testament distinguishes him from the Father. He can have a divine nature, Jesus now, he can have a divine nature, but not be the same person as God. You know, the Christian view of the Trinity, people say, well, three doesn't equal one. But you have to know what Christians say is the three and what Christians say is the one. Christians, Orthodox Christianity says flat out that there are three persons in the Trinity, but only one divine essence, only one divine nature. But I say deity because is the favorite names for him in the New Testament are Lord, Son of God, and also Messiah. But the two real heavy ones there are Lord and Son of God. And Lord is probably easily the heaviest because when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic into Greek, what's called the Septuagint, and this was BC, when it was translated into Greek, what we have there, you go to Greek and you're going to say, well, what word do we use for Yahweh? Because, I mean, Yahweh in the Old Testament, you know, if your listeners recall, it is a word specifically without vowels so that it can't be pronounced, at least not easily. And that's that's God. They didn't even want to pronounce the name of God any more than they had to. And every time they do, they teach it, they do it with respect. Other than that is to take God's name in vain. Okay. Well, so the major name for Jesus in the New Testament is Lord Adonai which is the exact same word used in the Septuagint to translate Jehovah. So that's huge. One example, Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, the three things I just mentioned, deity, death, resurrection, they're all right there. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead. The order there is deity, resurrection, dead. Okay, you go, well, like C.S. Lewis says, Lord can mean a lot of things. Lord can mean something as as low as sir, like come again, I didn't hear you. But three verses later, after Paul says this, he quotes the Old Testament, saying, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, that sounds like a Christian kind of saying, but it's in the Old Testament. The word there is Jehovah, but in the Septuagint, it's Lord. So Paul is as much as telling us in Romans 10:9, which is a fantastic verse. And there's a lot of others like this. But what he's saying is, this Lord I'm talking about, you want to look this up? Go find the Old Testament verse, and you look it up, and it's Jehovah. That's pretty big. Yeah, it's important you're, you're pointing out the Septuagint, because that's actually the Old Testament version Jesus and the Apostle Paul quote the most. is That's correct. Or, or paraphrase. Sometimes they paraphrase it just like I just did. Well, I, quote, I, I was kind of accurate on my Romans 10.9, but we often paraphrase, and uh, so do they, they do that in the New Testament, too. But you're right. It's the Septuagint that they para- paraphrase or quote. 
Yes. Now, you mentioned perform miracles which are recorded within a generation. Now, that's important because like you said. It is. Yeah. Tell us why that's important. Well, now, for starters, you're going to have to say, okay, what's a generation? And a generation is usually dated as anywhere between 20 to 40 years. And I guess they would say, you know, how old is an average child when they're when they're 20, how old is the average parent? Or when they're five, how old is the average parent? And you can add anywhere between 20 to 40 years, depending, you know, like if you're the first child or the last child or what culture you live in or whatever. But that's a long time. I mean, for some people, they go, that's going a long way. Well, just consider this. You don't have any problem with Alexander. You don't have any problem with Julius Caesar. You don't have any problem with Caesar Augustus. And they have much longer times. Buddha, and you know, see, because someone could say, yeah, but I don't worship Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, or Alexander. But what if you're Buddhist? Now, I don't know. Maybe you don't. I don't know how many groups there are, Pat. You'd know better than I. Who is Buddha worshipped as deity for Buddhists? Yes, about, I think, four to 500 years after Correct. Buddha's death, he began being worshipped as a deity in Northern Buddhism, not Southern Northern. Buddhism, but Northern Buddhism. Right, right, right. And we often think of like India or something, but he actually is from over toward China, very close to China, wasn't he? Yeah, the country of Nepal. Uh-huh. Nepal, yeah. So, yeah, and so they, they didn't worship him like that, and they don't make those distinctions. They didn't call him Lord to distinguish him from the God of the universe. They don't do that in the earliest sources. And I already gave the example. I said, what about Krishna? Well, Krishna might come the closest to that. But the earliest copy of the Bhagavad Gita we have is 4,000 years later. What happens to those sources in that time? I was just reading, I was doing the last chapter of my big book on the resurrection here, and I was talking about a, a source that was, you know, at the beginning, I was comparing Christianity to some to some other sources. And you just don't find data that get back there. And the scholars, when they'll go, well, Buddha did miracles, and I was making the point that Edward Conzi is saying, no, my sources are 6,800 years later. A lot of times, Pat, these scholars don't even know that. They don't know how long the miracle accounts are after Buddha, or that, as you just said, Buddha's worshipped six, eight hundred years later. They don't know that. You know why? They freely, generally tend to take world religious texts at face value, but they're as difficult as they can be against the New Testament. Why? I think it's the topic of this talk today. I think it's because Jesus makes some such bombastic claims. And if you're not a Christian, you don't like those bombastic claims oftentimes. So you've got to come down on them. But you don't have a problem with Buddha doing that. It's different. Well, yeah, it's different. It's not in the sources. <laughs> it's not there. So for me, to, to finish your question there, if you said, well, how do we know Jesus made those claims? I would go back to texts which atheist and agnostic New Testament scholars are willing to concede, I'll give you a list if you want, where they're willing to concede where the so-called red letter versions in the Gospels have Jesus making that claim. And if anybody goes, well, we don't know he made that claim, okay, we'll take it up with the agnostic and atheist and Jewish New Testament scholars who don't have an axe to grind. You go, well, okay. Well, if he said it, how do we know it's true? Then I'll go back and say, well, you didn't hear the other points here. The other points have to do with miracles being done within a generation, 20 to 40 years, recorded within a generation. And what do you do with the resurrection? If Jesus was raised from the dead and the Father did it, who else could he be? 
you can call him a heretic if you want, but it makes no difference. It makes no sense that God would raise him from the dead if he were a heretic. And we wonder why Christianity has the most adherence to the world. They don't spread the gospel with the sword. They're not going to force anybody to come. I already used the example of, uh, you know, it's not like marriage. You can't be forced by your best friend to say, I do. It doesn't force anybody. But it's got, I think the majority of people who come are seeing the logic and the sources and like, Again, what Paul Barnett, the uh, Australian historian, says, there's nothing like in a secular history in the ancient days, let alone in ancient religious sources. Yes, you know, and I think the point that it's, you know, within a generation is key because the eyewitnesses who can verify these miracle accounts or the teachings of Jesus or the life and events of Jesus are still alive when the message yep. is being preached, when the writings are being circulated. It couldn't have survived if it was completely false. There's just too many eyewitnesses who are still alive who can discredit the teaching and preaching and the writings of the apostles if it were not true. So that's a real important point you're saying here within a generation. It is important, you know, but that, that was the earlier point I was making, too, that when skeptics, they will grant, like those two guys I was talking about, Ehrman and Casey, who are going after the Jesus mythesis, they will grant seven of the 13 books that bear Paul's name. And critics, they're not only unanimously accepted, as Bart Ehrman says, but they accept the same books as unanimous, not just any seven, the same seven. And one of those books accepted by everybody is Galatians 1 and 2, the whole book of Galatians. But in Galatians 1 and Galatians 2, because Paul goes twice, he goes up to Jerusalem and interviews those guys. So, So if they say, yeah, but if my salvation depends on somebody saying it 50 years later, what about dot, 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 you know? But Paul went up, and you go, okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. When did Paul interview them? Paul gives us the math, and it's the consensus New Testament position. In other words, I could give you a list without even batting an eye. I could give you a list of 50 critical scholars we have to talk about people who study this area. It's not like every religion personal rights, but I could easily give you a list of 50 critical scholars who say that Paul was there and did in Jerusalem and interviewed Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and John. And the first two he interviewed, the first trip, Galatians 1, he interviewed Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and they put that at plus five, five years after the cross. That's when he interviewed them, and he's telling us. Now, they accept Paul. Critics accept Paul is a legitimate witness, because here's what they'll say. They'll say, Paul basically had a Ph.D. in Old Testament. He was really sharp. He knew the languages. He studied. He was a Pharisee. He tells us that. He was an expert in the Old Testament. He's a good ethicist. He's an honest man. He could be wrong, the critics say. He could be wrong, but he's not going to lie to you. So he's really honest. And so they accept what he says in Galatians 1 and 2. You know, I, I should tell you this, Pat, when I mentioned already my um, my late buddy, Anthony Flew, who at the time, he became a theist later, but he was the best-known philosophical atheist in the world for decades. And he and I were together. We were good friends, and we were together. And I heard him say it. We were at a university together several times. And he said to people, he said, Paul was a first-rate philosopher. Jesus is a first-rate moral philosopher. And I was interested in that distinction. He emphasizes morality with Jesus, morality and ethics. And for Paul, 
he emphasized his logical progression of his arguments. So when we were alone, I said, Tony, um, I'm just curious. On what grounds do you call Paul a world-class philosopher? <laughs> and what he said, I'll always remember it. He goes, my golly, have you ever read the book of Romans? <laughs> I'm thinking, have I ever read the book of Romans? Here he is, an atheist. He says, have you ever read the book of Romans? And I said, sure. He goes, anybody who reads the book of Romans knows the man can carry an argument. You don't have to agree with him, but you can know he, you, you know he knows how to argue. So Paul's a first-rate philosopher. Jesus is a first-rate ethicist. And that's why they're so well-known to people who, like Anthony Flew, are athe well, were atheists. Yeah, he was a titan uh, when it comes to the world of philosophy. And yeah, he was. Yeah, he really, really was. And I was privileged to interview him uh, six years before he died. And we co-authored an article published in a leading philosophy journal, Philosophia Christi. And it was called, if I have the exact wording right, it's called My Pilgrimage from Atheism to Theism. And it was what convinced Anthony Flew to become a theist. And he interchanged the words theist and, and deist, because he was afraid too many people don't understand deist. But, but anyway, that he, theist is in that title. He gives three arguments, by the way, for why he had to come to believe in God. One, uh, just real quickly, one is Aristotle's metaphysics, which involved questions like, you look at the universe, and why is there something here rather than nothing here? Now, a lot of lay people say, yeah, well, where'd the Big Bang come from? That's basically the same question. Uh, why is there something rather than nothing? Second argument, he did buy the arguments from intelligent design, and he wanted to know why even people like Dawkins admit the order in the world. Remember, Dawkins says there's extreme order in the world, but that's just an illusion. It doesn't really mean anything. But there is order. Anthony Flew said, yeah, well, that's a pointer to God. And number three, he said, why are there laws of nature? Why do two plus two always equal four? And you could say, well, that's because I just read a guy trying to do this just today. The guy said, well, when the world came into existence, however it did, he said, that's just the way it was set up. And two plus two, nothing holy about two and two. It's just that two plus two is always going to be four. But the question is going to be, like Francis Schaeffer used to say, if you have time plus chance plus the impersonal, a lot of time, a lot of chance, as much chance as you want, and in a personal beginning, if you're an atheist, why does 2, 2 plus 2 equal 4? Why is pi always the same? How is there that kind of laws? And those three things are what brought Anthony Flew to becoming um, a theist. So, Gary, you know, we see here how Jesus is unique from any other religious right. leader in world history. But, you know, there is the question out there for many of us, many of our listeners out there, that how do we know that all religions are not valid ways to God? Don't we all have a piece of the pie? That's a good question, Pat. I mean, it really is, because Jesus isn't, I have no problem as a Christian saying there were leaders in other religions who were ethical, who were ethical leaders who could teach ethics in universities. I have no problem with that. In fact, in, in fact, I just thought about this. I didn't say it on purpose to lead to this verse, but as I was uh, just getting to the end of that sentence, I thought to myself, Pat, think about Romans 1 and 2, which says 
that we came into this world, we're all born, and there's two ways we can know God exists. One is up in the heavens, by looking at the heavens, the other one's looking inside us because of the moral law inside of us. I mean, it's very possible in your town, the best farmer is an atheist. That's very possible. Mm-hmm. Maybe the guy in, the, in your town who would least likely ever lie is, uh, let's just make him an ex-military man, and he's an atheist. Let's just, you know, do that. That's true. The ethics is true. I think there are a lot of very exemplary people in world religions. But you go, well, do you believe in him or God? Well, now when they don't even say that, show me one person in a major religion, a Muhammad, a Confucius, a Lao Tzu of Taoism, uh, Muhammad, Zoroaster, take anyone in the Old Testament, Moses, David, Daniel, who said they were deity? You go, well, Jesus didn't say he was God. I know, we've already done that. Who? Okay, so which of those claimed to be Lord and meant it in the sense of God? It's hardly prejudice if I don't believe that they're the Lord of the universe when they either said they weren't, which is very frequently true, or never made that claim. I can't put those words in my, on their mouth just to be politically correct. I'm talking about history here. One of the most popular questions that are asked out here is, what about those who have never heard of Jesus then? If he's the only way to eternal life, what about those who've never heard? Okay, well, I I could make some of your listeners uh, really mad with this one, or I could make them say, huh, that's thoughtful, depends on who they are. Let me give the two major views, and the two major responses, now you say, well, there's another one, all religions are ways to God. Yeah, but if the religious founder we're talking about doesn't claim to be a deity and doesn't claim to have the only way, I mean, you know, what are we supposed to do? But as far as what about people who, who are worshiping some other person and they've never heard of Jesus, what happens? Well, the classic Christian answer is if they respond, God will send them a messenger. We see that in the New Testament with Paul being sent to, I mean, around the whole eastern end of the Mediterranean, all the way over to to Rome, uh, Paul goes and speaks. We got the well-known case of uh, uh, Peter being called to Cornelius' house. He's a Roman, and Cornelius has been praying and giving alms, and, and God sends Peter to his house. The classic answer is, God will reveal himself to those who search in terms of Romans 1 and 2 and see God in nature and or in themselves. But the second, that that view is called exclusivism. Now, what both these major views have in common is the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. But the first, because that's just what the evidence says. I'm not trying to be, you know, weird or something. It's what the evidence says. But the first view says they have to know who he is. Let's use a Christmas example. You get a gift from somebody and it says, love, mom. Okay, you know who the gift is from and you know who to thank. But what if you get a gift from somebody and there's no tag on it or it came off and it came in the mail, so that person's not present. Could you still open the gift? Sure, because it says Pat on the outside of the gift. And it came to your house, but, you know, there was no return address. The second most common view is that anybody who gets there will get there through Jesus. But if a person really, really searches, and oh, let's take a famous case. There's a famous case of a tribe, an original or an aboriginal tribe in, in a country. It's an actual historical case. And the medicine man has a dream that a white man is coming with a black book, and they didn't even have books. And he said, leave the boards of this book 
and that's God's will for you. And he told everybody about this dream, and the people were looking forward to a white man coming with a black book. He even told them what tree he was going to set up under, and when the guy came, like seven years later, he set up under that tree. But it was a large tribe of people, and in the meantime, a whole lot of people died. Now, that sounds like the Old Testament. So in other words, it seems like a lot of people died looking forward to somebody they never met whose name they didn't know. The second view is called inclusivism, and it says if you throw yourself on God's mercy, God is going to do what he can for you. And what, he, what I say what he can, it's not like he can't do something. But his own rule he set up is, uh, I already gave it as one of the eight rules, that what you do with Jesus determines where you spend eternity. God can give you a gift without a name on it, but the gift is still for you. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Zucran.